Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Garth Ennis is one of the world's most renowned writers of comics, He's worked on Judge Dredd, Hellblazer, and he created Preacher. Today, he's talking to me about comics, games, history of war, and the challenges he faced reviving historical stories in the new battle action comic, available now from Rebellion's online shop. Welcome to Future Imperfect. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining another edition of Future Imperfect podcast. I have with me the illustrious Garth Ennis. We're going to talk about comics, and in particular, boys' war comics, because there's some really interesting areas to discuss around these. So, Garth, would you introduce yourself for those that might not know your career and your work? Uh, I think it'd be useful to help them understand where you're coming from. Sure. Well, my name's Garth Ennis. I write comic books. been doing it for about 30 years. Came out of British comics, really, Began working for Crisis in 2000 AD, then moved to American comics, uh, did things like Preacher, The Boys. They've been turned into TV shows, so they're probably what people know. But I have been writing a great many war comics. I grew up reading that kind of material in UK comics. And so when I got to the point where I was able to do my own comics, there was a sense of the whole thing coming full circle, and I was able to start exploring that genre today. Now, boys' comics have a, an illustrious history. I mean, again, so people might not know, I'm part of Rebellion, and we've got a huge back catalogue of comic books that go all the way back to, I think, 1888 and Comic Cuts for Boys. And in that archive, there's a whole bunch of different comic book themes, but one of the constants is action-adventure and battle, war, combat, mm. in all its varieties. Are you aware of the sort of background, the, the shoulders of giants that you're standing on when you're writing your work? Not the whole thing, but I'm very much aware of the war picture libraries, battle picture libraries, air ace picture libraries, which you would now own, I think. Yes, that's right. They were published, I think, in the 50s and 60s. You had some tremendous artwork in those. You had some very good writing, occasionally quite 
realistic writing, getting away from the traditional jingoistic approach to war comics. And more than anything else, I think that was what led me into my interest in Battle, which was the British war comic published by IPC in the 70s, begun by Pat Mills and John Wagner. It's where that renaissance in modern British comics, modern comics actually begins. You have Battle, a war comic that succeeds. Then Action, which is, well, what its name sounds like. That, of course, goes slightly wrong. It gets folded into Battle to become Battle Action and continues as such for several years. And then, of course, they hit the jackpot with 2000 AD. So you can see that the Battle, this war comic, fulfills a very important evolutionary role in British comics. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, one of the things that you talked about is the idea that they explore less jingoistic themes now. And I'm aware that we sort of have a rise of the of the anti-hero or the alt-war story. Is that a fairly recent phenomenon? I think that's definitely true. I mean, classic British war comics, the kind of things that, that battle replaced really tended to be very much jingoistic, but also I think they were happy to take the viewpoint of the establishment and go with familiar narratives when it came to World War II in particular. Battle was the first to start to overturn that. that. There, of course, you can see the hand of Pat Mills and John Wagner. You suddenly get many working class protagonists. You get stories featuring aspects of the war you haven't seen before. You get the Russian front, obviously, in Johnny Red. Eventually, you'll get Charlie's War, which is probably the most important story that's ever appeared in British comics, where you have an approach to the First World War that's never really been seen before in comics, and which I think in a way grows to define battle. But I think as part of that overall movement of 70s comics in Britain with battle and action in 2000 AD, it's anti-establishment. It's very much looking at things from points of view that haven't been examined before. Battle, of course, is where that begins. Do you think it sort of ties in with the whole sort of punk movement in any way, shape, or form? I mean, 2000 AD certainly seems to riff off the punk movement hmm. and the alt narrative. And do you, do you think this is the beginnings of it before punk came along? I have to be honest and say that I don't know enough about the history of punk to talk about it in any detail. I know that many of that generation of 2000 AD writers and artists do talk about that. I think what's more important when it comes to battle and the action is that sense that the publishers got that they were losing sales, that when they did their research, kids were saying that comics are too tame, comics are boring. They realize, I think, the publishers realize that kids can see far more extreme material on TV and at the movies. They have access to stuff that makes the comics that are being put out look tame. And that is why uh, the publisher, John Sanders, goes to Pat Mills and John Wagner and says, we need to compete. We need change. We need to do something that will give kids a comic or comics that will stand up to what they can see elsewhere, because otherwise we're going to be left behind. And I feel like that's where it begins. So they're sort of almost taking the sort of established norms of war comics and the classic heroes, the classic sort of stories. There's good people and the bad people and good people always win and the bad people always lose. Mm -hmm. And changing that around, changing the perspective. We talked about working class heroes and ordinary people in extraordinary situations. Charlie's War is basically 
about a story of a soldier who really doesn't want to be there and all the horrors that he encounters in that incredible, awful time of history. But it's interesting that that got pushed into action as well. Action was a bit more, wasn't clearly the whole kind of war component, but it had lots of detectives and, well, school kids rioting, Mm -hmm. which is the thing that got us into trouble, I think, back in the day. Questions were asked in Parliament. I think it was literally pulled from the shelves, wasn't it? One of the issues. I can't quite remember the details. I think you're quite right. I think what happened was the comic was launched with a very anti-establishment subversive feel to it. A story about a giant shark where the shark is the hero and wins all the time. A story about a secret agent, Dredger, who's worse than anyone he comes up against. Um, (laughs) A story about a football player, a classic British sports strip, except he's in love with a football hooligan and so on. And I think, as I understand it, what happened was when Pat Mills launched the comic, he had a good sense of just how far you could go with this stuff, how you could push things. But when he left the comic to go and work in 2000 AD, the editorial team that took over, a bit less experienced, didn't have that fine sense of judgment and just thought, okay, we're going to do anything we want. And it's still the 1970s and it's still a kid's comic. You could go so far. And I believe there were so many complaints that, yes, it was withdrawn from sale. It was then, after a period, brought back, but in heavily censored, effectively neutered form. Seals quite naturally fell because kids weren't getting that carnage that they'd grown to love. <laughs> and eventually sales fell to the point that it suffered the fate of most unsuccessful British comics. It was simply folded into another one. And that was why you got battle action. It was a good fit in a way because battle was already quite feisty itself. And the stories they took like Hellman which was action story about a German panzer commander. I think the subversive element there was simply the fact that they'd made a German the hero. Well, that's a great fit for battle, obviously. They also took Dredger, the secret agent story, and give it a slightly more military feel. So although he's still running around doing secret agent stuff, there's a lot more combat-oriented stuff. He's not so much in an urban environment. It's more sort of world-spanning stuff. Do you remember, does this come from a sort of era of moral panic over quite extreme and rapid changes in the appetite of the adults of the time for a certain type of entertainment from their childhood and a new generation of kids? You've got the beginnings of technology and the beginnings of the computer games industry. Mm-hmm. You've got Star Wars coming in in 77. You know, we're talking about the mid-70s here. And does this mark a sea change in media consumption, do you think? I mean, television is starting to have a bit more content that's more edgy, perhaps. Yeah. It's interesting that comics are representing that as well. That, I think, I mean, you mentioned earlier anti-heroes. And I think when Pat and John, putting these comics together, start to look to film and TV, because, of course, that's their brief. Their brief is you've got to give us something that can stand up to what the audience can get elsewhere. You've got to give us something that'll stand up to film and TV. They quite naturally look at what's hot at the time. Hookjaw in action, Jaws, Dredger, a sort of a combination of Dirty Harry, the Ip Crest file, the sort of nastier stuff that's around at the time, the more cynical stuff in battle, Rat Pack. That goes beyond just anti-establishment and puts a commando team together from criminals recruited directly out of prison. Now, that's very obviously the Dirty Dozen. Again, we see the movie influence. 
So I think it's very much, as you say, it's a question of what's around at the time. And it's that cynicism that starts to creep in towards the end of the 60s in most obviously Clint Eastwood's films, enormously successful and popular. And that finds its way into comics of the time, most obviously via battle and action. So how have you brought back some of these characters in a time that's very different? How did you approach reimagining for a new audience, but also not losing what made them great and what made them resonate with you as a reader? Now you're a writer. I very much focused on the second half of what you've said on keeping the essence of what had made them great in the first place. In terms of reimagining them for new audiences, that's not what I really tend to do. What I tend to do is play up what I think great about the original material and hope that a new audience will respond to it in the same way that an old one would. So when you look at the battle action special, for instance, you'll see classic war stories like Johnny Red, The Sarge, Crazy Keller, Hellman, and you'll see that they would fit, I think, quite neatly alongside the old material. Dredger also, there's some good, honest carnage in the new Dredger strip. <laughs> I think people will be uh, happy to hear. Have you had to change anything for the sort of modern sensibilities? Did you notice yourself modifying the language in any way or attitudes towards any groups of society? A little bit, but only to really fit my outlook and my writing style to begin with. The way I write dialogue, for instance, I try to make it as realistic as possible. I'm, I'm never going to be able to write dialogue the way someone like Jerry Finley Day, who wrote The Sarge, or Tom Tully, who wrote Johnny Red did, because there's just it's just a little bit too hysterical, a little too hyperbolic for my taste. You know, and that's a generational thing. You know, tastes change. But for the most part, I found myself able to write stories that I think would fit in quite well with the original runs. That was the model I followed when I was writing stories for the battle and action specials that you put out a couple of years ago when I wrote Rat Pack and uh, Hellman. And I tried to write things that I thought would sit quite neatly with the originals. It was doing that, of course, that gave me an appetite for more. I like that. In many ways, I'm quite pleased that you, you aren't trying to reinvent the characters because the characters are great. I just tell more stories in the same landscape, yeah. which I think is wonderful. What do you think's happened? I mean, comics as a medium for entertainment have obviously changed radically. We've got a lot of people these days, especially non-specialist comics readers, probably think comics are only superheroes, mm -hmm. which of course is an absurdity and is a very narrow niche, actually. Mm -hmm. Particularly sort of bizarre that North America seems to just have superhero comics and very few. Well, there are some underground comics and there are some old comics, but broadly the masses, the Marvel and DC, and of course their huge success in movies and tv british comics have never really had this quite the same scale of success mm. do you have a concept why that might be is that just the opportunity of the audience or what do you think i think that when the british comics audience began to shrink in the 80s and 90s just in terms of sheer numbers when you narrowed it down from mainstream readers who will pick up their comic their weekly comic on the newsstand read it and not exactly think no more about it, but certainly not act like the diehard comic fan who will then take it, discuss it, break it down, join with groups of like-minded people. They just aren't the numbers in the UK to do that. Whereas in the US, even though comic sales fail, 
even though numbers were winnowed down a bit from the newsstand audience to the specialist comic shop audience, I think there were still enough people, it's a bigger country, for them to continue to generate the sales on all those characters. You could say, I suppose, that British comics of the 80s perhaps weren't as good at adapting to changing times. Battle, for instance, eventually went into decline and they folded a sort of a, a series of stories about a line of toys, Action Force. Right. Totally separate from action into it. And that was the best they could do. And it, it arrested the fall in sales for a while. And then that fall continued and the one comic got folded into another until very nearly you only had 2000 AD left. So you might, you might almost blame it on a sort of a lack of imagination or interest. It has to be said that the publishers of these comics weren't particularly interested in them themselves. They were just, you know, how much of them they actually read is open to debate. They were really just there to generate cash. Yeah, it's just a business. I mean, we found that when we took over 2000 AD, that from the perspective of the publisher, there was, yeah, the individual people involved in the in 2000 AD were very passionate about it, obviously, but mm. sort of middle and senior management above them it was just a product line and it was just a line in a spreadsheet and how it was doing was the important thing and, you know, make it for less, sell more. And there was no sense that it was culture mm -hmm. and important heritage that they were dealing with, which I actually think comic books are. I think they're very much forgotten part of uh, kind of ordinary heritage and they shape the computer games world. They shape entertainment these days, let's face it. Mm -hmm. it's, it's huge. But there's another thing I think that the American publishers were perhaps a bit better at doing than we are or were in the UK, which is throwing away the old stuff and taking the character in a different direction mm -hmm. and ignoring the fans that don't want it. Mm -hmm. They're sort of doing the, let's reinvent Spider-Man again, let's reinvent Batman again. And they've done it so often that it becomes fairly standard. The continuity thing is largely ignored, whereas here... I mean, you only have to look at the Doctor Who fandom to realize how convoluted continuity can get. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, in Marvel and DC, they seem to be happy just to go, right, we're retconning the whole lot. We're starting again and let's go. You buy all the comics again. Yeah. I mean, at the point they've reached with 50 or 60 years of history, sometimes more behind each character, there's nothing to be lost, I think, from simply saying, all right, clear the decks and we start again here. I'm more interested, I suppose, in the characters that don't have 40 or 50 years of history. If you look at the characters in the Battle Action Special, there is a massive gap in the publication of their stories between, for most of them, the early 80s and now. There's nothing there, which is why the method I described where you just focus on what's great about them, I think is still valid. And that applies to Hawk the Slayer too, actually, because there isn't 40 years of publishing <laughs> between that movie and the comic we just put out. So focus on what was great about the original. If there had been, if there had been a dozen Hawk the Slayer movies, a role-playing game, a line of novels, and umpteen comics, now might have been the time for a reboot just as it is for all these American characters you're talking about. But there wasn't, so it isn't, if you see what I mean. I do entirely. When you were doing your research for what characters to write and what to put in, did you find any sort of hidden gems that are less well-known that you thought, I'd love to explore that character more, but you just didn't quite get the time or the energy to do it? To an extent, yeah. I mean, I was very fortunate when I put the battle action special together in terms of the characters I chose that 
I was able to do exactly the ones I wanted. If not my favorites, then the ones that I felt were most worthy of of another look. Uh, Take a character like Crazy Keller, which is this brilliant story that Alan Hebden and Eric Bradbury created about an American signals officer who is up to his neck in the black market. (laughs) And so he fights World War II, essentially trying to make a profit, but to be fair, trying to do the Germans as much damage as he can at the same time. And he drives about it. It's irresistible, really. He and his long-suffering assistant, a guy called Ariel, go around in this heavily armed Jeep, basically uh, outrunning and outwitting the Germans at every opportunity. Now, no one really knows about this character because it's of an archetype, a sort of roguish loner type that in the knowledge of comic fans, generally far better served by another character called Major Easy, which is the other character that Alan Hebden and Carla Siskera created in that mold. And yet I think Crazy Keller's a better strip. I think the characters are better. They make more sense. There's more coherence to the overall narrative. And that's an example of something where I thought, right, Crazy Keller's going in because Major Easy doesn't need a boost in his visibility. Crazy Keller does. I want people to know what Alan and Eric achieved with Crazy Keller. Beyond that, you know, there are always more ideas. There are always those things that you think, yeah, I wouldn't mind revisiting that. Um, if we do another special next year, maybe that would be the time to look at other hidden gems, you know. I love the fact that we have this vast archive. We have an archive chamber with shelving on rails to get enough shelves in there. And every time I show guests around or something like that, I'll have a look and I'll take something off the shelf and have a look. And I've never seen it before. And it's probably that particular book has never been opened. And those pages have not been read for 50 years. And the sense of exploration when looking through an archive of old work is wonderful. I also like the fact that a lot of this work wasn't, wasn't created with a view to it being a legacy piece of artwork. Mm. It wasn't created looking forward to how you might be perceived as a writer or an artist. It was all sort of jobbing artists and writers trying to make a buck and, mm-hmm. and move on. I mean, back in the day, there were, must have been thousands of writers and artists working to generate the content in all the literally hundreds of weekly comics that were out at the height. And I think in a way that makes it a more honest representation of what ordinary people were thinking and reading, mm-hmm. that a fine artist making legacy work for the future. <laughs> How do you see your work sort of in terms of when you're writing it, presumably you, you're just trying to tell a really good story and you're not worried about how people see you from the outside or are you? Not too much. You know, sometimes I'm asked, where do you see this in the overall run of your career? You know, how does this fit in with your other work? And it, it's a question I really don't have much of a satisfactory answer to because I tend to judge each story and approach each story on its own merits rather than worry about where it fits. I think you're quite right, unquestionably, about how that old material was produced. That doesn't mean that there weren't people giving it everything they had. I think it's just that when battle kicks off, you get a generation of writers and artists who just have a glimmering of possibility for the future of seeing that actually you can do something of worth with this funny little medium um, battle's been going about a year, I think maybe a couple of years when John Wagner comes up with a story called Darkies Mob with artist Mike Western. And it's set in Burma in 1942 to 43, which of course saw some of the most savage fighting of the war between the British and the Japanese. And the interesting thing about that story is 
you get the sense it's the first time someone has really properly researched and thought about what they're about to write, not something throwaway like D-Day Dawson or some of the other strips that defined the first couple of years of battle, but something, something where the writer and artist are really trying to say something important. And I feel the comic turns a corner at that point. I feel that because of that and because of what's done later in battle with Charlie's War and so on, and what then that leads to in 2000 AD, you've started the ball rolling that will take us to the situation we have now where, of course, things are done to last. Things are intended to be collected. People are thinking about legacy. An important evolutionary step in American comics is, of course, the Vertigo line which was built on a foundation of British comics writers' work. And Karen Berger, who, who ran that line, very generously, but I think accurately, did say, no 2000 AD, no vertigo. And that's absolutely right. You know, she is acknowledging that evolutionary step that allowed her to do what she did. That's the importance, I think, of battle in going from ultimately throwaway material to something of worth, leading eventually to things that are intended to have a, a shelf life beyond the week that they go on sale. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's also an economy in storytelling as well, trying to almost tell a story in fewer pages if you only need fewer pages. I get the feeling sometimes that when I'm reading certain comics, they needed to fill 22 pages. <laughs> And they're sort of the story is stretched thin, almost like not enough butter on a piece of toast. Mm -hmm. It's sort of definitely there, but it's not enough. And I feel that one of the legacies of 2000 AD and prior to that action and battle was the need to fit a good story into a few pages. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you would see as a meaningful thing to say? Definitely. Um, I don't think there's any question that as the Vertigo line took off, People did start to think more in terms of the collection, the trade paperback, the hardcover, whatever. Now, there are two ways to do that. You can write each issue as part of an overall coherent whole, which I think is fair enough. Or you can stretch it out a bit, as you've said, you know, and have one long combat sequence or one long, very atmospheric tracking shot that goes through the whole book. And that will read terrifically in the collection not so much for the single monthly issue. It's a trap that people fell into. I know I can think of a couple of times I've done it. You try to avoid it, but when you are thinking about an overall narrative of one book, one 
hundred, two hundred page book. Sometimes you can't help it. That's interesting because I'd never thought about how the pages are seen and how many of them put together. Because if you've got a, an anthology like 2000 AD, where you've got five or six pages for a story, mm. then you've got to wait till next week to get the next one. And they, the whole point is, I've really enjoyed that story, but there's a hook to take me and make me buy next week. In America, typically the cadence is monthly. Mm -hmm. So you've got to try and hook people there. But you've also potentially got to write for the collected edition where everything's put together in one book and that's got to read as well. So that's actually quite a challenge from a writer's perspective, a writer's and artist's perspective, but mm -hmm. primarily a writer's perspective initially, dividing up that story into suitable length segments, I guess. Yeah. Do you ever get to that point where you go, I'm two pages too short for this turning point or I'm two pages too far for the turning point for the end of the issue? It does happen occasionally. I mean, generally pacing, there's that instinctive feeling you have about it and you know you're going to get to where you're going to go just the way you want to get there. But occasionally you do do that and you have to go back and re-examine it and rethink what you're doing. It, it's worth noting, of course, that the more traditional comics weren't necessarily immune to that tendency, but for a different reason. If you look at uh, some of the work, perhaps someone like Tom Tully was doing on Battle or 2000 AD, you can see he's stretching things out occasionally to a quite ridiculous degree. He has a different problem. I believe he explained to Alan Grant that he couldn't make enough money with a six-issue story for Battle or 2000. But if he stretched 12, that same story just stretched over 12 issues, then all of a sudden, yes, he could make enough money. And of course, you know, there's another element to this. Because of what you've said, because at the time people aren't thinking legacy, they aren't thinking life beyond the weekly comic, they don't expect that they'll have to write a particular character for maybe longer than a year or two. Uh, I mean, John Wagner has said that he didn't think he'd be writing Judge Dredd for five years, never mind 45. <laughs> when Tom Tully kicks off Johnny Red in battle in 77 or 78, he doesn't know it's going to last 10 years. He couldn't have imagined that. For him, it will probably last as long as most British comic strips of the era, which is six months to a year, maybe two. So he's just not thinking in those terms any more than John was. It's why you get sometimes a sort of uneven quality to the continuity of these things, and you get ideas used twice as the writer realizes, oh my God, this thing survived. I'm going to have to keep going. I'm going to have to keep doing it. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. If you expect something's only going to be a kind of year-long gig, you kind of use all your ideas up and then the editor says, brilliant, I'll commission another year's worth of stories from you. And then as a writer, sometimes you must think, what am I going to do with this character now? I've kind of got through it. Yeah. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the working relationship between artist and writer, because comics are a collaborative medium, perhaps even more so than something like film, where you've got the actors and you've got the director but you've got technicians who are just making it happen. But I believe the relationship between writer and artist it varies depending on the writing. Hmm. How do you know it works and how do you like it to work? I like it to work where each of us trusts the other to do the job. And that's how I've done my best work and most successful work over the years. On Preacher, for instance, Steve Dillon and I, actually talked very little and very rarely about the future direction of the story. 
Steve just wanted me to keep him entertained, <laughs> really. His line was always, just give me a good story. And over the five or six years of that book's production, I don't think we got in each other's way once. I don't think he ever said, oh, bit too much of this. Or I said, ah, you're not really giving me what I need there. It was just writer and artist trusting each other to get on with the job. When that doesn't happen, well, the team tend not to last long. Artists I don't click with, and fortunately, they're few and far between. I just won't go back to. There are other ways of doing it. Some artists and writers uh, collaborate very heavily with the artist constantly suggesting ideas or asking the writer to write particular things in for him to draw. Those are things I don't mind. If an artist comes to me and says, so long as we're doing this story, I've always wanted to draw X, Y, and Z. Well, so long as it doesn't get in the way of the narrative, I'll put that in there for him. But when art overcomes writing or vice versa, that's where it starts to break down. That's what I tend to try to avoid. I suppose if you have the emergent property of two professionals working well together, each lifting each other's art form up, Mm. you must be wonderfully pleased with the work when you see it in final form. When you've written your script and you must have visual ideas in your head, even though you're not an artist yourself, but you have some ideas about how it might be. But then one of your art partners produces something and you think, wow, that's made my writing look really good. I'm really impressed. Is that the case? Very much so. Um, If you take the battle action special, for instance, I worked with some artists that I worked with before, Keith Burns, John Higgins, PJ Holden. Now, those are guys, as I say, I've worked with them before and I know I'm going to get great work. That doesn't mean they can't give me some nice surprises along the way where I say, oh, look what he's done there or, oh, great shot. But it's guys like Patrick Goddard and Chris Burnham, whose work I wasn't over familiar with. I liked it, but these were the first times I'd worked with these two guys. And it was wonderful. It was great to see them instantly nail what I wanted from the scripts. Chris Burnham in particular was a revelation on Crazy Keller. I mean, that is a wonderful kind of 90 mile an hour chase through hostile German territory with these guys in a Jeep being shot at by all and sundry. And Chris absolutely nailed it to the extent that I thought he was looking in my head. (laughs) And of course, there's another strip in in the special um, drawn by Kevin O'Neill. And I hadn't worked with Kevin before either, but of course I know his work very well. I grew up on it. You know, he blew my mind with Nemesis the Warlock when I was an 11 year old 2000 AD reader. And so with that, there was a curiosity like, you know, wow, what's my work going to look like? What's one of my scripts going to look like when it's gone through the Kev O'Neill machine. And of course it was wonderful. You know, it couldn't have been better. He nailed all the nuances. He got the humor. I don't think I knew it was going to be him when I wrote the script. It was actually Oliver Pickle's idea to bring Kevin in. And my goodness, did he come up trumps with that one? You know, whether it's someone you've worked with before or somebody new, there's always some element of the pleasant surprise about it if it works well. You know, and I'm glad to say that on this one, you know, all seven artists really nailed what was required. I think that's one of the wonderful things about comics as a medium. It's an emergent property of the of the writing and the art kind of coming together to create that story in the reader's head. It's different from a novel. It's less personal in some ways than just reading a book. You know, having the visuals to go along with the writing, it's special. I wish comics as a medium, though, were more popular than they are. 
it seems to be one of those situations where people don't want to put the effort in or not enough people want to put the effort in to seek out good comics and to read them. It's still chugging along. Yeah, we're still a medium that's successful, but I always feel it should be more successful and more front and center of people's media consumption. Yeah, I think a big part of it is that it's unlike any other medium, it's defined by a rather unfortunate genre. And that's the superhero material that you talked about earlier coming out of America. Most people, if you talk about comic books, will immediately think of costumed superheroes. That is the wall that needs to somehow be kicked down. How you do that, I don't know. But in a way, what you're up against is not just comics, but you're also up against the massive success of that genre now in movies and TV where they're taking over those media the way they did comics, sadly. Yes, it is interesting. You go to something like a, a comic convention, San Diego Comic-Con for one, and 2000 and Rebellion are going to be at the next one. What's noticeable is when I first started going to comic conventions, they were all about comics. People were buying and selling comics. There were writers and artists signing. It's all quite exciting. And there were a few stands with figurines and collectibles and merchandise. And over the last decade or two, it's changed into sort of more of a pop culture situation. You know, people are big fans of comic book heroes, but you ask them what their favorite comic book is, and they probably haven't even read one. It's very strange to be, well, it's not strange, it's an unusual situation that somebody can be a huge fan of a character from a medium that they don't consume in any way. Right. Whereas what you want, I think, is more perhaps the European model, the band Desene. Or the Japanese model, where, of course, manga is huge and a massive part of everyday life. That's what you'd be aiming for. Unfortunately, I think superheroes keep comics in the West kind of mired. And I don't quite know how you escape from that. I mean, I've spent the last 30 years kind of working around that <laughs> to the best of my ability. I've written some superhero comics, but the vast majority of my output is either creator-owned material or kind of action and war stories that I've managed to do on the fringe of what DC and Marvel put out. The Punisher, for instance, who's a vigilante character, but without superpowers or a costume or anything like that. I've been writing that character for about 20 years now, and he's one of the few mainstream American characters I can really keep going with, largely because I think unlike most of the other American mainstream characters. He comes from film and TV as well. He comes from the, the vigilante characters that began to appear in the 70s. That takes us back to what we were talking about earlier. But in that sense, in American comics, he's very much the exception that proves the rule. Now, I always find it must be quite difficult when writing a character that has superpowers how to make them vulnerable. And it appears to me that what they almost always do is remove their superpowers to make them interesting yeah. and give them some kind of stress. You know, that's why kryptonite was invented. Hmm. And then you think, well, he doesn't become Superman anymore. He just becomes man with issues that need to be solved in the narrative, in the drama. Hmm. Anyway, we've chatted for a wonderfully long time. How would people see more of your work in general? Is there any sort of social media that you're interested in people following? I have no social media presence at all, but I can tell you that, uh, you know, right now, of course, we've got Hawk the Slayer running 
the battle action special will be available next month. There'll be a, a signing in London at Gosh Comics to launch it, uh, followed by the Enniskillen Comic Festival in Northern Ireland a week later. So uh, that's probably the biggest thing that I'm working on right now. You know, there's a year and a half, two years of hard work's gone into that one. Um, and I think people are going to like what they see. And beyond that, you know, my work will continue to come out from various companies, from Rebellion. I have a World War II series called The Lion and the Eagle running at the minute from uh, Aftershock. That's a story set in the Burma campaign, you know, but Darkie's Mob lies somewhere way, way back in the roots of that one. And I'll be back on The Punisher and I'll be doing a new horror book. And uh, I'm even doing a couple of things for 2000 AD after a 30-year cap. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'm keeping busy and you're going to see my work from all sorts of places. Wonderful. Garth, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. And thank you for sharing your thoughts with Future Imperfect. And I'll speak to you later. All right. My pleasure, Jason. Thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.